Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Welcome to Global Council's latest in conversation looking at the war in Ukraine. I'm joined this morning by Bilahari Kauzikan, one of Singapore's most well-respected diplomats, foreign policy analysts and experts who had a very relevant and interesting career as an ambassador in the United Nations, in Russia. His father also served as an ambassador in the Soviet Union. Uh, we were just talking before the call about Bilahari's time living in Russia in the 1970s. And uh, following on from that, as permanent secretary in the foreign ministry in Singapore. So someone with deep and very relevant experience on the issue of the current crisis in Ukraine. I'm Benjamin Wegg-Crosser, Managing Director of Global Council and co-founder. Global Council now has been running for uh, 10, 11 years with a strong presence in Asia, in Europe and in the uh, US. And what we're going to do today is we're going to discuss how the crisis in Ukraine is viewed in Asia and its impact on the rest of the world, but also how it's impacting on how uh, uh, Asia uh, views the rest of the world. Uh, Bilahari. Thank you very much for joining us uh, today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Let's, um, let's start by looking at how the crisis is seen in Singapore. Yes, a small country, uh, but a big city. Just give us a flavor of how uh, the political and business community in Singapore have reacted to events over the course of the last month. Well, I think politically, I think our response has been very clear. You know, for a small country surrounded by much larger neighbors, um, the principle of the principle uh, at stake here is an existential one. You know, you can't go around invading other countries just because you don't like the, the shape of their nose or their face, right? To put it crudely, right? And and if you do resort to such an aggression, there has to be cost. Right? I think that has been very clear and a consistent um, position of our foreign policy for as long as I can remember, and that's 37 years um, of my participation. So this was uh, uh, such a fragrant violation, violation of um, you know, that fundamental existential norm of international relations that it could not be business as usual. And that is why we took the uh, not entirely unprecedented, but very uh, un rare measure of imposing uh, unilateral sanctions. Normally, we only impose uh, sanctions that have been endorsed by the Security Council, but for obvious reasons, this was not going to happen in this case because a permanent member is involved. So we did that. Uh, for the business community, I think uh, they are still taking a wait-and-see attitude. Nobody wants to uh, get caught up in the sanctions. Um, even if you have business in Russia, I am certain... I'm pretty certain that most businesses in Singapore have bigger businesses in Europe, in the UK, in North America, in Japan, right? Uh, in Australia and so on. So they will make, they, they will adjust their positions accordingly. But I think we are all still only beginning, not just in Singapore, but around the world, beginning to see what the uh, effects of this war in Ukraine, the effects of the sanctions will be on global supply chains, on, uh, on a still fragile global recovery from, from the pandemic recession. 
do you think that Singapore was comfortable about taking the choice that it did so quickly? It was noticeable that both Singapore and Switzerland, two countries uh, known to some extent for their both neutrality, but also their ability to um, to work with a wide range of different countries, having different and often competing views. Were you, were you surprised at the speed at which Singapore and Switzerland took the position that they did? Well, I can't speak for Switzerland, but I wasn't particularly surprised about Singapore because this was such an exceptional situation, as I said. We call for something, an exceptional response. Yeah. Now, let's look uh, a little bit further afield, looking at the rest of ASEAN. I mean, over the course of the last 10 years, uh, the Russians have sought to strengthen and deepen economic, trading, commercial links with the rest of ASEAN, focusing on energy, technology, and also to an extent, um, military hardware. Is that is that that's now clearly going to have to be put uh, on hold, if not if not reversed? Where where do you see Russia's links uh, across ASEAN being impacted by the crisis? Look, um, Russia's links with ASEAN were certainly much better than the Soviet Union's links with ASEAN, but that's setting a very low bar, right? Okay. Uh, we all have our own economic and other kinds of ties with Russia. Uh, but I think with the exception of Myanmar and Vietnam, Vietnam largely for historical reasons, uh, these are not very uh, deep ties as, as far as the economics goes, right? So, of course, but obviously this has all got to be put on hold. Uh, Russia is a major weapons supplier to, as much as the major weapons supplier to Myanmar. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Vietnam has a huge stock of uh, old Soviet-era weapons that it needs to keep uh, operational because it faces a problem from its own giant neighbor. Do you think that ASEAN nations will be comfortable in uh, maintaining relations with a country that's essentially become a pariah state in the eyes of almost everyone, uh, certainly in the Western world, and, and we'll come on to China later, but a, a country which is basically perceived as a pariah state? Well, no, I don't think anybody in ASEAN is want to um, stigmatize any country, whether we approve or disapprove of its behavior. Right? So what do you mean by maintaining relations? Nobody is going to break diplomatic relations with Russia. The UK hasn't. Uh, you know, um, the United States hasn't. Nobody, nobody has. So we'll maintain the normal diplomatic relationship. But I think you know what we can do within that relationship is obviously going to be severely conscribed, uh, not by the sanctions, but by Russian behavior. And you, um, let's just probe a little bit on Russian behavior. How, do you think that might change if the Russian, if the situation in Ki in in Kiev and in Ukraine deteriorates. Where where might a lot further lines be drawn? Do you think if the insurgency lasts weeks or months, if attacks on civilians become worse, if it's clear that the Russians can't win but they also aren't going to lose, is there a where's that line likely to be crossed? Do you think? Well, nobody can read Mr. Putin's mind, huh? but let me give you what I think will happen. Right? Um, I think it is very clear that he, for whatever reason, may have expected a swift victory. Now it is proving much more difficult thanks to the uh, heroic resistance of the Ukrainians, but also 
what has surprised me in particular is the rather the incompetent showing by the Russian military. You know, if you get your tanks running out of fuel or your soldiers running out of food, you really haven't prepared very well, you know, All right? So now being denied a swift victory, I think Mr. Putin must have politically a decisive victory because his, his, his claim to rule Russia, his legitimacy to rule Russia rests on his claim that he has restored Russian strength and respect for Russian strength. So he cannot accept any end game that would be uh, depicted as weakness on his part. That's the unfortunate point. The good upside of this is, I think he, is, he may be bad, but he's not mad. Huh? He's, uh, he understands the logic of nuclear deterrence. In fact, he rattled his nuclear saber a little bit to remind everybody that uh, this was the broad framework within which this conflict will be playing out. So I think there won't be a general war, but I'm afraid the price of there not being a general war will be Ukraine. I think NATO has made it very clear, and I think this is a correct decision, by the way, that NATO forces are not going to get directly involved in the defense of Ukraine. They will not, they will not infly, uh, enforce a no-fly zone, and it's all correct, because nobody wants a, a broader war, which may turn nuclear. Uh, and while the Ukrainians are resisting heroically, I think it is only a matter of time before the sheer weight the sheer mass of Russian forces overwhelmed them. But that's not the end of the story, right? I don't know. I mean, before, before all this started, or, or when he moved into the Donbass um, on the 22nd of uh, February, I thought there would be two broad scenarios, endgames. Right? One would be kind of like the Donbass endgame, that means you put in some kind of puppet regime in Kiev. Right? But there could also have been a Crimea scenario. That means you annex the whole thing. And, you know, if you look at Mr. Putin's remarks prior to, to the, the war, you know, this is an artificial entity. Ukraine has never been independent and so on. But now I think, you know, I, don't, I still don't know which he will choose, but I think it's going to be very, very difficult to rule Ukraine. He will win in Ukraine. I mean, I'm sorry to say this, it's tragic, but the Ukrainian forces will sooner or later be overwhelmed. But then he has to rule Ukraine. There will be a running sore in his sight for the foreseeable future. And if it's, as long as Russia is in Ukraine, relations with, uh, with Europe, with the United States, with the rest of the world, most of the world, can't be completely normal. As I said at the beginning, nobody's going to break diplomatic relations, but they won't, it'll be tough. It'll be tough for ordinary Russians. Let, let, let me... Let me ask your view as someone who is a very experienced diplomat, someone who has engaged and had dialogue with many of the decision makers uh, and, and, and understands the, the culture and the process of reaching a solution and a problem like the one that we face today. So one of the solutions which has been proposed in the kind of margins of the press, but it is being discussed, is some kind of version of the Louisiana Purchase, where you would see... Russia require Crimea, Lugansk, and Donetsk, and some kind of formal arrangement, some kind of formal agreement, which would be recognised uh, as a way of resolving this. I don't express, I don't have a preference on this. I'm not expressing a view on it, but I would be interested to hear your views 
Bilahari. Do you think that kind of process is feasible? Do you think the UN and others would engage with it? How would the US and others would uh, respond? Is that kind of quite, I guess it's quite a creative solution. Is that the kind of answer that you think will ultimately resolve the problems that we face with today? Well, I think it's not whether it can be accepted by the UN and other countries. But as I said earlier, I think Mr. Putin, having grossly miscalculated both the ease with which he could win in the Ukraine and the international response, having got his, himself into this pickle, needs a victory. Is that going to be enough of a victory for Mr. Putin? That's the question. And I don't have an answer. But this Crimea, Louisiana purchase type idea you think is in that ballpark? Look, he's already got Crimea. You know, Nobody's going to take it away from him. He's already got the Donbass. Nobody's going to take it away from him. So if I was an ordinary Russian, I said, we went through all this for what? For what we already have? I think that's a consideration. It's a domestic Russian consideration. As I said, Mr. Putin's claim to legitimacy is I have restored Russian might. I have restored respect for Russia. Well, what's happening in Ukraine? You think let me just ask you and respect? Let me just ask you, someone who's, who's lived in Russia, knows Russians well, have you ever met Mr. Putin? No, I've seen him at a distance. Seen him at a distance, but you've met the people that you've, you, you've met and interacted with people that work with him and advise him. Do you think that, do you think that Putin would be able to sustain a long-term insurgency in Ukraine with, a, with a, essentially a guerrilla civil war, a Slav-on-Slav -Slav civil war taking place over months and years. Do you think that Putin would be able to accept that? Or is that something that would be unconscionable to him and lead him to go in a different direction? Well, I don't know whether it's going to be unconscionable to him, but it's going to be very difficult to tell your own people after telling them, these are our brothers, we are one family. Uh, why you are in the long term killing them. Right, let's head a little bit east. Let's look at China. Um, just give, give us your top of head views as to how you see Xi and others in Beijing responding to the crisis. The, the European media today have alighted on the fact that in his conversations with Schultz and Macron yesterday, he yeah. seemed to be leaning towards some kind of European peace process that he was encouraging. That's for the first time put him slightly out of step with where Mr. Putin seems to be, or certainly he's no longer so closely aligned with Putin, which he'd been quite careful to do. Where do you see Xi uh, responding over the course of the next couple of weeks? Okay, I think, you know, China was at least taken by surprise on, by the scale and ferocity of the Russian invasion, if not the fact, right? because there was some measure of coordination because Mr. Putin holding off un until the Winter Olympics was over, you know, can't be totally coincidental. Right? Yeah. However, I don't think the Chinese expected what they, we are all witnessing. And it's put them in something of a pickle. China has, I think, three mutually irreconcilable objectives right now. And they can't be reconciled. The first is, of course, China wants to emphasize the traditional notions of sovereignty, non-interference, territorial integrity as basic norms of international relations. And the reason for this can be explained in three words, Tibet, Xinjiang, and Taiwan. Well, Ukraine has been a gross violation of these norms. The second objective, however, is for China to maintain 
It's partnership, a partnership they are both described as having no limits with Russia. And the reason for this is quite simple. Quite apart from the fact that they are both not very comfortable with a Western-oriented international order, the hard fact of the matter is China has no partner of strategic weight anywhere in the world except Russia. Think about it. All right? uh, but the third objective is also important. I said that both Russia and China have a common discomfort with the Western-oriented international order. But the fact is that China is much more deeply integrated into that order and has benefited economically much more than, from that order than Russia. Apart from energy and some you know, commodities, Russia is a marginal economic player. Now, Russia, Chinese growth has been slowing for some time for a variety of other reasons that have nothing to do with Ukraine, right? But, you know, a war in the heart of the Europe with all the disruptions, the economic disruptions to the global economy that, that we are already beginning to see cannot be welcomed in Beijing, particularly when it comes on the eve of a crucial party congress that's going to be held this autumn, right? And the immediate concern of China is to avoid getting entangled in sanctions against Russia. Now, these three objectives are mutually inconclusive. Mr. Putin made a miscalculation and Mr. C blindly followed him down a strategic dead end with no easy exit. I think all these adjustments of position, uh, which you just alluded to, actually, they began a bit earlier. They began, I think, Mr. C spoke to Putin on the 25th of um, February, just a couple of days after everything started. And he started beginning, beginning that even then to emphasize negotiations and, and things like that. However, the Chinese have also said that Russia's uh, legitimate security interests should be taken into account. Now, what is the definition of your legitimate security interests? If it is Mr. Putin's definition, if China follows Mr. Putin's de definition, there is nothing to negotiate except the terms of, of Ukraine's loss of independence. But if it is no NATO membership, for example, I'm just giving an example. Yeah. Well, Mr. Zelensky has already said, you know, he said earlier that NATO membership was an aspiration. And I think he just said either earlier today or yesterday that, that uh, Ukraine will not seek NATO membership. But the Russian offensive has not stopped. So what is there to negotiate? Again, it comes down to what does Mr. Putin want? And I think he needs not just a victory, not just a, a, a partial victory. It's very hard for him to compromise without you know, some long-term impact on his legitimacy. Particularly as you and I seem, to, I think you would agree with me, the prospects of even after Russian occupation, you know, the stabilization of U Ukraine is going to be a, a headache for the Russians for quite some time to come. Absolutely, but it's also going to be a headache for someone like Xi. Ukraine of has quite is. a strong... Well, of course it is. Of course Ukraine it is. has strong trading relations with, with China, uh, you know, good historic links and so on. So I guess my question is, based on uh, rising Asia, rising China, China being more assertive on the world stage, if yeah. how far do you think she will be prepared to go in playing a role in seeking some kind of reconciliation? Is this something which she would simply wish to do in the background, or, 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 or do you think you could see in this new 21st century, an Asian century, do you think you could see Xi deploying Chinese political capital to try and reach some kind of reconciliation? I think 
she would like an end to the fighting because it gets him out of that pickle I was describing a moment ago. However, how far, what price is he willing to pay for that? I don't think he's willing to pay the price of breaking with Putin. Because, don't, no, don't forget this, huh? you and I, our publics are not very enthused about what's happening in, the, in Ukraine, but the Chinese public is still at, at the instigation of the Communist Party, cheering Russia on. If you suddenly turn around and say, hey, chaps, hold on, this is all a mistake, you better stop fighting now, you've got some explaining to do to your own people, you know? And that's a consideration. All right, so they are in a pickle. They are in a pickle externally, they are in a pickle internally. They are willing to try to negotiate something, but I don't think at the cost of really undermining Putin or breaking with him. It is much more, to my mind at this stage, a tactical move to try to relieve some of the Western pressure on China. That's the, that, that's, let's pick up on one of those um, geographies that you referred to a moment ago, ta Taiwan. At the end of last year, it was widely discussed that we were one, one could have predicted for 2022 some kind of intervention, uh, military action, whatever, but some kind of way in which Taiwan and the mainland were going to be brought closer together. Looks like that's probably off the table for the moment. But when you look at Taiwan's sort of near to medium term future, how do you see events in Ukraine impacting on that? Well, I don't know who was predicting that last year. It can't be anybody with any knowledge of Taiwan or China or East Asia in general. Right? There was this silly uh, idea going around that the West is going to be very distracted with Ukraine, so China will attack Taiwan. That's just stupid. You know? Look, I think if I was Mr. C, China cannot give up its goal of reunification with Taiwan, whether forceful or peaceful. Right? Peaceful reunification is looking less and less likely because there is a separate Taiwanese identity and time is not on China's side. On the other hand, if I was Mr. C, I will be watching very carefully two things. First, I'll be wondering like hell whether what the, my generals, my own PLA general tell me is correct. Assuming they're telling me, don't worry, boss, we are going to have the capability to take Taiwan and it'll be a breeze, right? Having watched the performance of the Russian military, I'll be wondering whether what whether my guys are telling me the truth because, you know, my equipment is all based on Russian equipment and my doctrine is largely Russian doctrine. And, you know, the Russian army is a battle-hardened army and my army hasn't fought a war since 1979 when we made an incursion into Vietnam and we didn't handle that pretty well, <laughs> particularly well. And this against Taiwan will be an amphibious operation of a scale not seen since maybe the Incheon landings during the Korean War. And any military person will tell you an amphibious operation is the hardest kind of operation to pull off. So that's one thing I'll be wondering about. Second, I'll be looking at the international reaction. I think there was, an, there was a um, tendency both in Russia, Putin's Russia, and Xi Jinping's China to underestimate the West. With good reason, you know, because you guys are... You guys always do the right thing, having tried everything else first, right? <laughs> okay, uh, I'm stealing that from I think Churchill, but you know it applies not just to the U.S. but to to um, yep. to, to democracies in general because that's the nature of democracy. It takes a long time and a shock to get a consensus because democracies are decentralized. 
Now, that is a completely alien concept to Chinese political culture. So I think they, uh, they tend to underestimate, not the specialists, but the top leadership, right? So now they will have to think long and hard. Look, geopolitically, what are the consequences of this? There are three main consequences, all bad for China. One, Mr. Putin has done something that successive US presidents have failed to do, which is to get Europe to take its own defense seriously. All right. Overnight, Germany doubles its, doubles its uh, defense budget, and it seems that the war guilt for Operation Barbarossa is finally over. Right? And as you notice, even Switzerland, with its long tradition of neutrality, decides to impose sanctions. That's the first consequence, and I don't think it will go away. There will be tensions within Europe. There will be tensions within the Western alliance. Uh, there were tensions, but as long as Russia is in occupation, it will cohere. The second big consequence is to reinvigorate the idea of the West, the political West. You know, after the Cold War, it was loosening and it was in some danger of, you know, dissolving entirely. Well, it's invigorated and it will be there. And the third, the third geopolitical consequence is to emphasize the importance of regional balances and the vital role of the U.S. in these regional balances. This is something I think we in Asia have always been much more conscious of than Europe because of China, mainly because of China. But I think this is now going to be part of the strategic consciousness of Europe, the strategic consciousness of the Middle East, and you know, it's not a good thing for China. Oh. Um, so, you know, all this plays into how they look at Taiwan. They can't give up the aspiration. They will not renounce the use of force, but it will give them a very long pause. The Chinese are very rational, they are not impulsive, and they are not gamblers. Just let me pick up on one point that you made there. We'll come, on to, come back to Taiwan in a second. There are many uh, uh, very cute uh, examples of the way in which the world changed after the February the 24th, when something that we were led to believe was always going to be the case has now changed fundamentally. NATO, German military spending, and many others. One, one other good example of that has been that up until the 24th of February, the shift and trend in Eastern Europe was very much to lean to, to be to be prepared to play footsie with China on a trading and commercial relationship. The Chinese were very cute like this. They had a, set up a group called 16 plus one. Yes. They were actively seeking to splinter Central and Eastern Europe from Brussels. Overnight, that whole process has come to an end. Do you think the Chinese were aware of the kind of unintended consequences that were going to come from Mr. Putin's actions in Ukraine and how, for example, 20 years of building strong trading and political relationships with Romania, Poland, uh, Bulgaria, Vienna, um, Austria, all now come to an end. I don't think the trading really, no, first of all, I think there was a certain naivete, not just in Eastern Europe, but in Western Europe too, True. about China, huh? right? Uh, there was, and it, it predates all this, right? Uh, that naivete, I think, was beginning to dissipate even before the invasion of uh, Ukraine, but this has certainly accelerated it. Now, this does not mean that, any, that anybody will or should completely shun China. China is a core component of the global economy. China, US, Japan, EU, and so on. These are core components. You will have to deal with it, but everybody is going to deal with it with much greater caution and no illusion. Right now, any, anybody wants to do things with China will have to take two, 
two things into consideration. One, the American sanctions, trade sanctions against China and restrictions yeah. on technology, and now the Russian ones, right? So it's going to be much more difficult, but no, but China, no. There is, a, there is a, a loose trope that has been used mainly by journalists, but some academics too, who ought to know better. They call the US-China competition a new Cold War. I think this is an intellectually lazy and inappropriate way of describing that competition. The US and Soviet Union led two systems and competition was between their systems. Those systems were connected only tangentially. The US and China are both core components of one global economic system. And they are connected by uh, supply chains of such great density and complexity never seen before in history. Now, you cannot bifurcate that system completely into two different systems. It's just not possible. Some bifurcation has occurred, some more will occur in areas with national security implications, right? But complete across the board separation two systems as we saw between the US and Soviet Union is not possible, right? So you're going to compete within a system and that's much more complicated. So in the relationships between Europe and as a whole, forget about East Europe as a whole and China, it's going to be much more complicated than just taking one side or the other. I'll give you one example, right? Look, uh, you know, we all know now that semiconductors, the high-end semiconductors, are a serious vulnerability for China because all the crucial nodes in the global supply chain are held by the US or its friends or its allies, right? And China has been trying for maybe 15, 20 years to move up that value chain and they have stalled out, right? However, China is 40% of the global semiconductor market and you cannot possibly cut off your own companies from 40% of the market without doing them grievous harm. And that's how competition within a system is fundamentally different from competition between, a, between two systems. And you know, Europe is discovering this, I think. You will have to draw boundaries about what you do with China and you do not do with China, and the boundaries now have to take into account Russia too. It's more complicated. In fact, you're gonna have to rethink, not, not the UK perhaps, but you know, Germany certainly has, seems to have, and will have to continue to rethink how it deals with Russia. Absolutely, absolutely. And you've seen both um, uh, an anxiety amongst- Very quickly, starting very quickly and the anxiety about this. Right? Yeah, because it's, they are going into unknown territory. They don't know how to do this. Nobody knows. <laughs> no, you saw anxiety amongst the German, Italian, uh, French business community in relations with Europe over the course of the last few years where they sought to maintain some kind of dialogue. Huh? Um, and you've seen the same with, with China, where um, uh, a new uh, uh, bilateral trade partnership between Europe and China was agreed at the beginning of last year and then quickly put on hold thanks to political reasons. These things are all now open questions as to their future. Let's come back to Asia. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'd like to briefly touch on the Middle East, which I know is another part of the world. Uh, Bill Ahari that you're familiar with. Um, India. India took, uh, abstained in the United Nations. India, the world's largest democracy, uh, has also been presented with challenges as it's been put in a position where it's had to uh, be seen to be choosing between uh, Russia and its Western partners. How do you think Modi has handled the crisis and where do you see India heading in the next couple of months? I think India's abstention is disappointing, but not very surprising, right? 
It's disappointing for obvious reasons. This, as you said, India is the world's largest democracy. And what does it do? Does it vote with the other democracies? Well, I think it should give you a pause on two counts. Is it really a democracy? What kind of democracy is this? Right? This is all, this is always to my mind a bit of Western uh, idealistic rhetoric rather than a recognition of the reality of India. But never mind about that. But I, it is understandable because India has an enormous stock. It has not only a traditional relationship with Russia, yeah. right, and uh, and all those ties, personal as well as institutional, that that relationship uh, entails, and they are not going to be dismantled easily. But it also has an enormous stock of uh, Soviet-era Russian weapons, which it needs to keep operational, uh, because it has a problem with China and a problem with Pakistan. So, as I said, disappointing, but not, not uh, surprising. Now, as time goes on, and as I think this is going to be a long, drawn-out affair, I mean, the war, the fighting in Ukraine will end, maybe, I don't know when, but it will end sooner or later, it must end, right? But, to, to, but the, uh, the sanctions regime uh, is not going to be uh, lifted just because the fighting stops. There has to become some kind of equitable solution, yeah. right? And now, over time, I think India will reconsider its position. Not to break ties with Russia, but learn how to balance them better with, with certain values, certain norms of international relations, which India too, I think, values. Right? Values in a different way than a small country like Singapore, but nonetheless still values. And do you think that India's political brand, its reputation has been tarnished by this, or do you think that it's not perhaps as consequential as people think? Well, I think a bit of the um, the glamour may have, or the gloss may have worn off the image, but the image may have been a false one in the first place. India is a geopolitical fact, you know, like China, like Russia, you have to deal with it, you know. So, you know, you don't have to love people to deal with them, you know. But I think India, more or less, is, is a more congenial country to deal with than certainly Russia. Uh, yes. Less. Much better weather. Uh, right, let's move a little bit further to the West, Middle East. Another yeah. country that abstained in those initial votes was the UAE. The UAE also issued an edict to its national state media to not, not to refer to a war, but refer to military operations, um, echoing the uh, the approach taken by uh, the Russians and to an extent the Chinese. How do you see the politics of the Middle East playing out in relation to the crisis over the course of the next couple of weeks? Well, I think uh, the immediate. I think first of all, there have been yes, you know, there have been reports of you know both uh, Mohammed bin Salman and uh, and and the ruler of the UAE, UAE not taking calls on Biden or postponing the calls on Biden, right? Yeah. And I think uh, there is a large element of peak in this. You can't go around nagging people on human rights all the time huh? and expect them to you know, to take your call. I mean, so something that uh, Western countries, uh, a lesson that Western countries are constantly relearning, huh? that you can't have your cake and eat it. Huh? You can never have strategic uh, partners or you can, have, uh, you can have virtuous people on your side which will sit in the corner and twiddle their thumbs or you can have strategic partners, and therefore it means that you have to deal with who you have to deal. So I think there is a bit of peak in that, in their attitude. There is also a certain, at least for now, common interest, because one of the reasons 
if if you take a call from Biden, the first thing he's going to ask you is to start ramping up your production of oil to keep the price down, right? And I don't think that is in their immediate interest either, <laughs> right? But over time, I think it will sink into them, right? That if you want to be able to deal with what you consider the major threat in your region, which is Iran, you will need the Americans on your side. <laughs> Right? You need them to backstop you at least. Yep. Right? And so, you know, uh, they, will, they will change their position over time. They won't change it overnight, but over time. As I said, this is not going to be a short affair. It's a long drawn out affair. Indeed. Right. We're going we're gonna to wrap up in a few minutes. Just if, huh? if anyone has any comments or questions they want to put into the chat, uh, please do so. I might happily put any additional questions to Bilahari. Um, Bilahari, that's. Let's look at another uh, international platform that you're very familiar with, the United Nations. Uh, we are going through, uh, we've obviously lost count, the, the latest global crisis, global political crisis, where the UN's presence is essentially absent. Do you think it's sustainable for the UN to continue in this uh, role? The, 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 the aspirations and the objectives set out in its uh, founding 80 years ago now seem to be completely irrelevant as these crises continue to flare up in different parts of the world. But that's that's the UN, you know. It's nothing different from this crisis, from previous crisis, when a member of the uh, security, permanent member of the Security Council was uh, was involved, you know. Russia vetoed. I mean, you, you expect that, right? Any uh, effective action. Well, you know, if, there, if the Security Council looked like um, taking effective action during the Falklands crisis, the UK would have vetoed it. Two, I have no doubt about that. But you're a bit, you're a bit better off. You had the US and the UK to veto it, <laughs> right? And France would probably have explained. So there's nothing new about this, you know. The, and that's why the UN has survived where the League of Nations has not. That's the purpose of the veto. The veto is a fuse box that prevents the whole thing from blowing up, right? Is it better to have a, some kind of UN than no UN? I think it's better to have some kind. And mind you, when you talk about the UN, uh, you are now talking about the, the political institutions, the Security Council, the General Assembly, right? But there are functional parts of the UN that work pretty well most of the time, and they are quite essential. ICAO, IPU, you know, IMO, and so on. Now, General Assembly is political theater. It, it always has been, because its, its decisions are not binding. But political theater is also important as long as you don't put your expectations too high. Understand its importance as political theater and nothing more, and you will see some utility. Anyway, the UN is all we got, so we are to use it. Uh, absolutely, indeed. All good points. Right, a couple of questions here, Bilahari. Um, yes. Do you, uh, if the West stops buying Russian oil and gas, well, that's already happening, do you see China and India being uh, able to take up the slack? No, I don't know enough. I'm sure China and India will buy it if you're not going to buy it, right? It's not. Right, but I don't know whether there will be enough or not. I think the the more important thing, which the Russians may have thrown a spanner into the world, is to get Iranian oil flowing, get Middle East oil flowing, right? Mm. And that will bring the price down. It's not just whether people buy it or not. At what price do they buy it? Right. I think this is a spike. You know, I don't know what it was. It was 150, yeah. 150 a barrel, right? Okay. That's, a, that's an enormous spike, right? Is this sustainable? Probably not, because the U.S. is a major energy producer, shale to shale, 
the other sources that will come on stream. So I think the point is not to not to prevent people from buying it, but to get the I, the price down. Do you see do you see comparisons with the oil stock in the 1970s, or or, or do you think that those are misplaced? Too early to tell, really. Too early to tell. I mean, I know what's in people's minds, the stagflation that uh, yeah. that occurred from that, but I think it's too early to tell. I hope not, anyway. <laughs> All right. Um, couple more, uh, couple more questions here. Is Biden providing the reassurance to ASEAN to play a balancing role between China and the Indo-Pacific, do you think? That's from Tiffany. Well, you know, at the beginning of this affair, right, some very superficial analysts or you could call them China flags, uh, put out the argument that with the West uh, distracted, the US in particular distracted over Ukraine, you know, uh, China will have a free ride in Asia just as it did during the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan wars. That's a particularly stupid argument, I always thought, because it ignored one, one major fact, right? When the major fact being, this time it is China's partner Russia that is getting bogged down in a war and not its rival America. And that's, I think, quite fundamental. Secondly, the US has made it clear it will backstop what is actions taken against, against uh, Russia. But it's, if, since it's not fighting a war, it, has, it can do two things at once. And it has made clear it wants to do two things at once. Right? I think uh, I, I'm not concerned about that, you know. I think Biden has done as well as can be expected, given that everybody was more or less taken by surprise by this. It was not something that was, of course, US intelligence had been predicting this, but it was predicting it when the buildup was already beginning, right? But I think, uh, no, I don't think, I'm, I think Biden has done pretty well, all things considered. Uh, last question here from someone who is anonymous. You'll see why when you, when you, when you hear the question. Do you think that NATO's bombing of Yugoslavia in 1999 without seeking UN Security Council approval is different from Russia's operation in Ukraine today? I think as a small country, all major powers behave in very similar ways. So the issue is, this is not an issue of moral judgment. This is an issue of where you, your interest lies for, for, for a small country and for all countries. People make their, states make their judgments not because of uh, moral principles, but basis of interest. So you have to decide for yourself where your interests lie. And I think it's pretty clear in this case where most countries' interests lie. And that's the, that's the value of the political theater of the UN, because you can give you at least a rough guide. <laughs> Very diplomatic, and I would have expected nothing um, uh, less. Last question from, 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 from me. Zelensky, uh, a politician who has become a global figure in the course of the last couple of uh, weeks, who has uh, addressed the British Parliament uh, yesterday, who addressed Congress last week, who seems to be on a never-ending series of telephone calls with world leaders across the world, who is posting videos and tweeting and being incredibly active in social media. As, a, as, as an observer of many different kinds of political leaders, we see Zelensky, to my mind, kind of redefining what leadership looks like. How do things look like from Singapore? How, how have you observed and followed his profile? Well, I think most Singaporeans, I certainly do, admire his courage 
And he's the right man for the right times because he understands the use of media. He understands the use of soft power through the media. Yeah. But it also, I think, uh, illustrates a hard fact of life that you know, soft power alone is not enough. Well, that's very true. Uh, Bidahari, thank you very much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. We'll make the conversation available on our podcast for people to share. Uh, people who are on the line, please continue to follow what Global Council is doing to follow the war in uh, Ukraine. We are publishing regular material, lots on our website, supporting our network and clients and others. The team in Singapore is actively involved in that, as is, as is the team in Doha, Brussels, London, and Washington, D.C. I thank you uh, all for joining. Please keep in touch, Bilahari. Again, thanks again. I look, I look forward to seeing you in Singapore when I can next get. Oh, there. come, come in, come in. Let's have a drink. You know, I look forward. We'll get to Andrew. It. We'll get Andrew to buy us a drink. All we'll right, Andrew. All right, bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.